CD4 The barges stopped at some of the towns. By tradition, only the men went ashore, and only Amshat, wearing his ceremonial lying hat, spoke to non-Zoons. Esk usually went with him. He tried hinting that she should obey the unwritten rule of Zoon life and stay afloat, but a hint was to Esk what a mosquito bite was to the average rhino, because she was already learning that if you ignore the rules, people will, half the time, quietly rewrite them so that they don't apply to you. Anyway, it seemed to Amshat that when Esk was with him, he always got a very good price. There was something about a small child squinting determinedly at them from behind his legs that made even market-hardened merchants hastily conclude their business. In fact, it began to worry him when a market broker in the walled town of Zemphis offered him a bag of ultramarines in exchange for a hundred fleeces. A voice from the level of his pocket said, They're not ultramarines. Listen to the child, said the broker, grinning. Amshat solemnly held one of the stones to his eyes. I am listening, he said. And they do indeed look like ultramarines. They have the gilt and shimmy. Esk shook her head. They're just sparkles, she said. She said it without thinking and regretted it immediately as both men turned to stare at her. Amshat turned the stone over in his palm, putting the chameleon spiracle stones into a box with some real gems so that they appeared to change their hue was a traditional trick. But these had a true inner blue fire. He looked up sharply at the broker. Amshat had been finely trained in the art of the lie. He recognised the subtle signs now he came to think about it. There seems to be a doubt, he said. But it's easily resolved. We need only take them to the Assayer in Pine Street, because the world knows that spiracles will dissolve in hypactic fluid, yes, no? The broker hesitated. Amshat had changed position slightly, and the set of his muscles suggested that any sudden movement on the broker's part would see him flat in the dust. And that damned child was squinting at him, as though she could see through to the back of his mind, his nerve broke. I regret this unfortunate dispute, he said. I had accepted the stones as ultramarines in good faith, but rather than cause disharmony between us, I will ask you to accept them as as a gift, and for the fleeces, may I offer this rosate of the first sorting? He took a small red stone from a tiny velvet pouch. Amshat hardly looked at it, but without taking his eyes off the man, passed it down to Esk. She nodded. When the merchant had hurried off, Amshat took Esk's hand and half-dragged her to the assayer's stall, which was little more than a niche in the wall. The old man took the smallest of the blue stones, listened to Amshat's hurried explanation, poured out a saucer full of hypactic fluid and dropped the stone in. It frothed into nothingness. Very interesting, he said. He took another stone in a tweezer and examined it under the glass. These are indeed spiracles, but remarkably fine specimens in their own right, he concluded. They are by no means worthless, and I, for example, would be prepared to offer you... Is there something wrong with that little girl's eyes? Amshat nudged Esk, who stopped trying out another look. I would offer you, shall we say, two zats of silver. Shall we say five, said Amshat pleasantly. And I would like to keep one of the stones, said Esk. The old man threw up his hands. But they're mere curios, he said. Of value only to a collector. A collector may yet sell them to an unsuspecting purchaser, as finest rosettes or ultramarines, said Amshat, especially if he was the only assayer in town. The assayer grumbled a bit at this, but at last they settled on three zats, 
and one of the spiracles on a thin silver chain for Esk. When they were out of earshot, Amshat handed her the tiny silver coins and said, These are yours. You have earned them. But... He hunkered down so that his eyes were on a level with hers. You must tell me how you knew the stones were false. He looked worried, but Esk sensed that he wouldn't really like the truth. Magic made people uncomfortable. He wouldn't like it if she said simply, Spiracles are spiracles and ultramarines are ultramarines, and though you may not think they look the same, that is because most people don't use their eyes in the right way, nothing can entirely disguise its true nature. Instead, she said, The dwarfs mine spiracles near the village where I was born, and you soon learn to see how they bend light in a funny way. Amshat looked into her eyes for some time. Then he shrugged. Okay, he said. Fine. Well, I have some further business here. Why don't you buy yourself some new clothes or something? I'd warn you against unscrupulous traders, but somehow, I don't know. I don't think you will have any trouble. Esk nodded. Amshat strode off through the marketplace. At the first corner he turned, looked at her thoughtfully, and then disappeared among the crowds. Well, that's the end of sailing, Esk told herself. He's not quite sure, but he's going to be watching me now, and before I know what's happening, the staff will be taken away, and there will be all sorts of trouble. Why does everyone get so upset about magic? She gave a philosophical sigh and set about exploring the possibilities of the town. There was the question of the staff, though. Esk had rammed it deep among the fleeces, which were not going to be unloaded yet. If she went back for it, people would start asking questions and she didn't know the answers. She found a convenient alleyway and scuttled down it until a deep doorway gave her the privacy she required. If going back was out of the question, then only one thing remained. She held out her hand and closed her eyes. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. It lay in front of her eyes. The staff mustn't come flying through the air, wrecking the barge and drawing attention to itself. All she wanted, she told herself, was for there to be a slight change in the way the world was organised. It shouldn't be a world where the staff was in the fleeces. It should be a world where it was in her hand. A tiny change an infinitesimal alteration to the way things were. If Esk had been properly trained in wizardry, she would have known that this was impossible. All wizards knew how to move things about, starting with protons and working upwards, but the important thing about moving something from A to Z, according to basic physics, was that at some point it should pass through the rest of the alphabet. The only way one could cause something to vanish at A and appear at Z would be to shuffle the whole of reality sideways. The problems this would cause didn't bear thinking about. Esk, of course, had not been trained. And it is well known that a vital ingredient of success is not knowing that what you're attempting can't be done. A person ignorant of the possibility of failure can be a half-brick in the path of the bicycle of history. As Esk tried to work out how to move the staff, the ripples spread out in the magical ether, changing the disc world in thousands of tiny ways. Most went entirely unnoticed. Perhaps a few grains of sand lay on their beaches in a slightly different position, or the occasional leaf hung on its tree in a marginally different way. But then the wave front of probability struck the edge of reality and rebounded like the slosh off the side of the pond, which, meeting the laggard ripples coming the other way, caused small but important whirlpools in the very fabric of existence. You can have whirlpools in the fabric of existence, because it's a very strange fabric. Esk was completely ignorant of all this, of course, but was quite satisfied when the staff dropped out of thin air into her hand. It felt warm. She looked at it for some time. She felt that she ought to do something about it. It was too big, too distinctive, too inconvenient. It attracted attention. If I'm taking you to Ankh Morpok, she said thoughtfully, you've got to go in disguise. A few late flickers of magic played around the staff, 
and then it went dark. Eventually, Esk solved the immediate problem by finding a store in the main Zemphis marketplace that sold broomsticks, buying the largest, carrying it back to her doorway, removing the handle and ramming the staff deep into the birch twigs. It didn't seem right to treat a noble object in this way, and she silently apologised to it. It made a difference anyway. No one looked twice at a small girl carrying a broom. She brought a spice pasty to eat while exploring. The stallholder carelessly shortchanged her and only realised later that he had inexplicably handed over two silver pieces. Also, rats mysteriously got in and ate all his stock during the night and his grandmother was struck by lightning. The town was smaller than O'Hulan and very different because it lay on the junction of three trade routes, quite apart from the river itself. It was built around one enormous square, which was a cross between a permanent exotic traffic jam and a tent village. Camels kicked mules, mules kicked horses, horses kicked camels, and they all kicked humans. There was a riot of colour, a din of noise, a nasal orchestration of smells, and the steady, heady sounds of hundreds of people working hard and making money. One of the reasons for the bustle was that over large parts of the continent, other people preferred to make money without working at all. And since the disc had yet to develop a music recording industry, they were forced to fall back on older, more traditional forms of banditry. Strangely enough, these often involved considerable effort. Rolling heavy rocks to the top of cliffs for a decent ambush, cutting down trees to block the road, and digging a pit lined with spikes while still keeping a wicked edge on a dagger probably involved a much greater expenditure of thought and muscle than more socially acceptable professions, but nevertheless, there were still people misguided enough to endure all this, plus long nights in uncomfortable surroundings, merely to get their hands on perfectly ordinary large boxes of jewels. So a town like Zemphis was the place where caravans split, mingled and came together again, as dozens of merchants and travellers banded together for protection against the socially disadvantaged on the trails ahead. Esk, wandering unregarded amidst the bustle, learned all this by the simple method of finding someone who looked important and tugging on the hem of his coat. This particular man was counting bales of tobacco and would have succeeded but for the interruption. What? I said, what's happening here? The man meant to say, push off and bother someone else. He meant to give her a light cuff about the head, so he was astonished to find himself bending down and talking seriously to a small, grubby-faced child holding a large broomstick, which also, it seemed to him later, was in some indefinable way paying attention. He explained about the caravans. The child nodded. People all get together to travel. Precisely. Where to? All sorts of places. Stolart, Pseudopolis, Ankhmore Park, of course. But the river goes there, said Esk reasonably. Barges, the Zunes. Ah, yes, said the merchant. But they charge high prices and they can't carry everything. And anyway, no one trusts them much. But they're very honest. <laughs> yes, but you know what they say, never trust an honest man. He smiled knowingly. Who says that? They do. You know, people, he said, a certain uneasiness entering his voice. Oh, said Esk. She thought about it. They must be very silly, she said primly. Thank you, anyway. He watched her wander off and got back to his counting. A moment later, there was another tug at his coat. Fifty-seven, 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 fifty-seven. Well, he was trying not to lose his place. Sorry to bother you again, said Esk, but those bale things... What about them, fifty-seven, 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 fifty-seven? Well, are they supposed to have little white worm things in them? Fifty-seven... What?! The merchant lowered his slate and stared at Esk. What little worms? Wriggly ones, white, added Esk helpfully. All sort of burrowing about in the middle of the bales. You mean tobacco threadworm? 
He looked wild-eyed at the stack of bales being unloaded by, now he came to think about it, a vendor with the nervous look of a midnight sprite who wants to get away before you find out what fairy gold turns into in the morning. But he told me these had been well stored and... How do you know, anyway? The child had disappeared among the crowds. The merchant looked hard at the spot where she had been. He looked hard at the vendor who was grinning nervously. He looked hard at the sky. Then he took his sampling knife out of his pocket, stared at it for a moment, appeared to reach a decision, and sidled towards the nearest bale. Esk, meanwhile, had by random eavesdropping found the caravan being assembled for Aunt Kmorpok. The trail boss was sitting at a table made up of a plank across two barrels. He was busy. He was talking to a wizard. Seasoned travellers know that a party setting out to cross possibly hostile country should have a fair number of swords in it, but should definitely have a wizard in case there was any need for magic arts, and, even if these do not become necessary, for lighting fires. A wizard of the third rank, or above, does not expect to pay for the privilege of joining the party. Rather, he expects to be paid. Delicate negotiations were even now coming to a conclusion. Fair enough, Master Treetle, but what of the young man? Said the trail boss, one Adab Gander, an impressive figure in a troll-hide jerkin, rakishly floppy hat and a leather kilt. He's no wizard, I can see. He's in training, said Treetle, a tall, skinny wizard whose robes declared him to be a mage of the ancient and truly original brothers of the Silver Star, one of the eight orders of wizardry. Then no wizard he, said Gander. I know the rules, and you're not a wizard unless you've got a staff, and he hasn't. Even now he travels to the unseen university for that small detail, said Treetle loftily. Wizards parted with money slightly less readily than tigers parted with their teeth. Gander looked at the lad in question. He had met a good many wizards in his time and considered himself a good judge, and he had to admit that this boy looked like good wizard material. In other words, he was thin, gangling, pale from reading disturbing books in unhealthy rooms, and had watery eyes like two lightly poached eggs. It crossed Gander's mind that one must speculate in order to accumulate. All he needs to get right to the top, he thought, is a bit of a handicap. Wizards are martyrs to things like asthma and flat feet. It somehow seemed to give them their drive. What's your name, lad? He said, as kindly as possible. said the boy. His Adam's apple bobbed like a captive balloon. He turned to his companion full of mute appeal. Simon, said Treetle. Um, agreed Simon thankfully. Can you cast fireballs or whirling spells such as might be hurled against an enemy? Simon looked sideways at Treetle. <laughs> he ventured. My young friend follows higher magic than the mere hurling of sorceries, said the wizard. Oh, said Simon. Gander nodded. Well, he said, maybe you will indeed be a wizard, lad. Maybe when you have your fine staff, you'll consent to travel with me one time, yes? I will make an investment in you, yes? <laughs> Just nod, said Gander who was not a naturally cruel man. Simon nodded gratefully. Treetle and Gander exchanged nods, and then the wizard strode off, with his apprentice trailing behind him under a weight of baggage. Gander looked down at a list in front of him and carefully crossed out, Wizard. A small shadow fell across the page. He glanced up and gave an involuntary start. Well, he said coldly, I want to go to Ankh Morpok, said Esk. Please, I've got some money. Go home to your mother, child. No, really, I want to seek my fortune. Gander sighed. Why are you holding that broomstick? He said. Esk looked at it as though she'd never seen it before. 
Everything's got to be somewhere, she said. Go home, my girl, said Gander. I'm not taking any runaways to Ark Morpok. Strange things can happen to little girls in big cities. Esk brightened. What sort of strange things? Look, I said go home, right? Now. He picked up his chalk and went on ticking off items on his slate, trying to ignore the steady gaze that seemed to be boring through the top of his head. I can be helpful, said Esk quietly. Gander threw down the chalk and scratched his chin irritably. How old are you? he said. Nine. Well, Miss Nine Years Old, I've got two hundred animals and a hundred people who want to go to Ark, and half of them hate the other half, and I've not got enough people who could fight, and they say the roads are pretty bad and the bandits are getting really cheeky up in the paps, and the trolls are demanding a bigger bridge toll this year, and there's weevils in the supplies. I keep getting these headaches, and where in all this do I need you? Oh, said Esk. She looked around the crowded square. Which one of these roads goes to Ark, then? The one over there with the gate. Thank you, she said gravely. Goodbye. I hope you don't have any more trouble and your head gets better. Right, said Gander uncertainly. He drummed his finger on the tabletop as he watched Esk walk away in the direction of the Ark Road. A long, winding road. A road haunted by thieves and gnolls a road that wheezed through high mountain passes and crawled panting over deserts. Oh, bugger, he said under his breath. Hey, you! Granny Weatherwax was in trouble. First of all, she decided she should never have allowed Hilter to talk her into borrowing her broomstick. It was elderly, erratic, would fly only at night and even then couldn't manage a speed much above a trot. Its lifting spells had worn so thin that it wouldn't even begin to operate until it was already moving at a fair lick. It was, in fact, the only broomstick ever to need bump starting. And it was while Granny Weatherwax, sweating and cursing, was running along a forest path holding the damn thing at shoulder height for the tenth time that she had found the bear trap. The second problem was that a bear had found it first. In fact, this hadn't been too much of a problem because Granny, already in a bad temper, hit it right between the eyes with a broomstick, and it was now sitting as far away from her as was possible to get in a pit and trying to think of happy thoughts. It was not a very comfortable night, and the morning wasn't much better for the party of hunters who, around dawn, peered over the edge of the pit. About time too, said Granny. Get me out! The startled heads withdrew, and Granny could hear a hasty, whispered conversation. They had seen the hat and the broomstick. Finally, a bearded head reappeared, rather reluctantly, as if the body it was attached to was being pushed forward. Um, it began. Look, mother. I'm not a mother, snapped Granny. I'm certainly not your mother, if you ever had mothers, which I doubt. If I was your mother, I'd have run away before you were born. It's only a figure of speech, said the head reproachfully. It's a damned insult is what it is. There was another whispered conversation. If I don't get out, said Granny in ringing tones, there will be trouble. Do you see my hat? Eh? Do you see it? The head reappeared. That's the whole point, isn't it? It said. I mean, what will there be if we let you out? It seems less risky all round if we just sort of fill the pit in. Nothing personal, you understand. Granny realised what it was that was bothering her about the head. Are you kneeling down? She said accusingly. You're not, are you? You're dwarfs. Whisper, whisper. Well, what about it? Asked the head defiantly. Nothing wrong with that, is there? What have you got against dwarfs? Do you know how to repair broomsticks? Magic broomsticks? Yes. Whisper, whisper. What if we do? Well, we could come to some arrangement. The dwarf halls rang to the sound of hammers, although mainly for effect. 
Dwarfs found it hard to think without the sound of hammers, which they found soothing. So well-off dwarfs, in the clerical professions, paid goblins to hit small ceremonial anvils, just to maintain the correct dwarfish image. The broomstick lay between two trestles. Granny Weatherwax sat on a rock outcrop, while a dwarf, half her height, wearing an apron that was a mass of pockets, walked around the broom and occasionally poked it. Eventually, he kicked the bristles and gave a long intake of breath, a sort of reverse whistle, which is the secret sign of a craftsman across the universe and means that something expensive is about to happen. "'Well,' he said, "'I could get the apprentices in to look at this. I could. "'It's an education in itself.' And you said actually managed to get airborne? It flew like a bird, said Granny. The dwarf lit a pipe. I should very much like to see that bird, he said reflectively. I should imagine it's quite something to watch, a bird like that. Yes, but can you repair it, said Granny. I'm in a hurry. The dwarf sat down slowly and deliberately, as for repair, he said. Well, I don't know about repair. Rebuild, maybe. Of course, it's hard to get the bristles these days, even if you can find people to do the proper binding and the spells need... I don't want it rebuilt. I just want it to work properly, said Granny. It's an early model, you see, the dwarf plugged on. Very tricky, those early models. You can't get the wood. He was picked up bodily until his eyes were level with Granny's. Dwarves, being magical in themselves, as it were, are quite resistant to magic, but her expression looked as though she was trying to weld his eyeballs to the back of his skull. Just repair it, she hissed. Please. What? Make a bodge job? said the dwarf, his pipe clattering to the floor. Yes. Patch it up, you mean? Betray my training by doing half a job? Yes, said Granny. Her pupils were two little black holes. Oh, said the dwarf. Right then. Gander, the trail boss, was a worried man. They were three mornings out from Zemphis, making good time, and were climbing now towards the rocky pass through the mountains known as the Paps of Scylla. There were eight of them. Gander often wondered who Scylla had been, and whether he would have liked her. A party of gnolls had crept up on them during the night. The nasty creatures, a variety of stone goblin, had slit the throat of a guard, and must have been poised to slaughter the entire party, only... Only no one knew quite what had happened next. The screams had woken them up, and by the time people had puffed up their fires and Treetle the wizard had cast a blue radiance over the campsite, the surviving knolls were distant spidery shadows running as if the legions of hell were after them. Judging by what had happened to their colleagues, they were probably right. Bits of knolls hung from the nearby rocks, giving them a sort of jolly, festive air. Gander wasn't particularly sorry about that. Knolls liked to capture travellers and practice hospitality of the red-hot knife-and-bludgeon kind. But he was nervous of being in the same area as something that went through a dozen wiry and wickedly armed knolls like a spoon through a lightly boiled egg but left no tracks. In fact, the ground was swept clean. It had been a very long night, and the morning didn't seem to be an improvement. The only person more than half awake was Esk, who had slept through the whole thing under one of the wagons and had complained only of odd dreams. Still, it was a relief to get away from that macabre sight. Gander considered that Knowles didn't look any better inside than out. He hated their guts. Esk sat on Treetle's wagon, talking to Simon, who was steering inexpertly while the wizard caught up with some sleep behind them. Simon did everything inexpertly. He was really good at it. He was one of those tall lads apparently made out of knees, thumbs and elbows. 
Watching him walk was a strain. You kept waiting for the strings to snap. And when he talked, the spasm of agony on his face, if he spotted an S or W looming ahead in the sentence, made people instinctively say them for him. It was worth it for the grateful look which spread across his acnid face like the sunrise on the moon. At the moment, his eyes were streaming with hay fever. Did you want to be a wizard when you were a little boy? Simon shook his head. I just wanted. I did her things. Worked? Yes. Then someone in my village told the university that Master Treetle was sent to bring me. I should be a wizard. One day, Master Treetle says I have an exceptional grasp of the theory. Simon's damp eyes misted over and an expression almost of bliss drifted across his ravaged face. He tells me they've got thousands of books in the library at Unseen University, he said in the voice of a man in love. More books than anyone could read in a lifetime. I'm not sure I like books, said Esk conversationally. How can paper know things? My granny says books are only good if the paper is thin. No, that's not right, said Simon urgently. Books are full of... He gulped air and gave her a pleading look. Words, said Esk after a moment's thought. Yes, they can change th things. That, that's... That... What? I must find. I know it's th there, somewhere in all the old books. They say there's no new spells, but I know that it's there somewhere, hiding in the words. Yes, that no wizard, said Esk, her face a frown of concentration, yes, has ever found. His eyes closed and he smiled a beatific smile and added, The words that will change the world. What? Eh? said Simon, opening his eyes in time to stop the oxen wandering off the track. You said all those wobble yous. I did? I heard you. Try again. Simon took a deep breath. The... The he continued, "It's no good. It's gone." He said, "It happens sometimes. If I don't think about it, Master Treetle says I'm allergic to something. Allergic to W's? No, silly," said Esk generously. "There's." Something? In the air. P pollen, maybe, or grass dust. Master Treetle has tried to find the cause of it, but no magic seems to help it. They were passing through a narrow pass of orange rock. Simon looked at it disconsolately. My granny taught me some hay fever cures, Esk said. We could try those. Simon shook his head. It looked touch and go whether it would fall off. Tried everything, he said. Fine. Magician, I'd make, eh? If I can't even utter the name. I could see where that would be a problem, said Esk. She watched the scenery for a while, marshalling a train of thought. Is it uh, possible for a woman to be, you know, a wizard? she said eventually. Simon stared at her. She gave him a defiant look. His throat strained. He was trying to find a sentence that didn't start with a W. In the end, he was forced to make concessions. A curious idea, he said. He thought some more and started to laugh until Esk's expression warned him. Rather funny, really, he added but the laughter in his face faded and was replaced by a puzzled look. 
never really th thought about it before. Well, can they? You could have shaved with Esk's voice. Of course they can't. It is self-evident, child. Simon, return to your studies. Treetle pushed aside the curtain that led into the back of the wagon and climbed out onto the seat board. A look of mild panic took up its familiar place on Simon's face. He gave Esk a pleading glance as Treetle took the reins from his hands, but she ignored him. Why not? What's so self-evident? Treetle turned and looked down at her. He hadn't really paid much attention before. She was simply just another figure around the campfires. He was the vice-chancellor of Unseen University, and quite used to seeing vague, scurrying figures getting on with essential but unimportant jobs like serving his meals and dusting his rooms. He was stupid, yes, in the particular way that very clever people can be stupid, and maybe he had all the tact of an avalanche and was as self-centred as a tornado, but it would never have occurred to him that children were important enough to be unkind to. From long, white hair to curly boots, Treetle was a wizard's wizard. He had the appropriate long, bushy eyebrows, spangled robe and patriarchal beard that was only slightly spoiled by the yellow nicotine stains. Wizards are celibate, but nevertheless enjoy a good cigar. It will all become clear to you when you grow up, he said. It's an amusing idea, of course, a nice play on words. A female wizard. You might as well invent a male witch. Wallocks, said Esk. Pardon me? My granny says men can't be witches, said Esk. She says if men tried to be witches, they'd be wizards. She sounds a very wise woman, said Treetle. She says women should stick to what they're good at, Esk went on. Very sensible of her. She says if women were as good as men... They'd be a lot better. Treetle laughed. She's a witch, said Esk, and added in her mind, There, what do you think of that, Mr. So-called clever wizard? My dear young lady, am I supposed to be shocked? I happen to have a great respect for witches. Esk frowned. He wasn't supposed to say that. You have? Yes, indeed. I happen to believe that witchcraft is a fine career for a woman, a very noble calling. You do? I mean, is it? Oh, yes. Very useful in rural districts for for people who are having babies and so forth. However, witches are not wizards. Witchcraft is nature's way of allowing women access to the magical fluxes. But you must remember, it's not high magic. I see. Not high magic, said Esk grimly. Oh no, witchcraft is very suitable for helping people through life, of course, but I expect women aren't really sensible enough to be wizards, said Esk. I expect that's it, really. I have nothing but the highest respect for women, said Treetle, who hadn't noticed the fresh edge to Esk's tone. They are without parallel when... When, for having babies and so forth. There is that, yes, the wizard conceded generously. But they can be a little unsettling at times, a little too excitable. High magic requires great clarity of thought, you see, and women's talents do not lie in that direction. Their brains tend to overheat. I'm sorry to say... There is only one door into wizardry, and that is the main gate at Unseen University, and no woman has ever passed through it. Tell me, said Esk, what good is high magic exactly? Treetle smiled at her. High magic, my child, he said, can give us everything we want. Oh, so put all this wizard nonsense out of your head, all right? Treetle gave her a benevolent smile. What is your name, child? Escarina. And why do you want to go to Ankh, my dear? I thought I might seek my fortune, muttered Esk. But I think perhaps girls don't have fortunes to seek. Are you sure wizards give people what they want? Of course, that's what high magic is for. 
I see. The whole caravan was travelling only a little faster than walking pace. Esk jumped down, pulled the staff from its temporary hiding place among the bags and pails on the side of the wagon, and ran back along the line of carts and animals. Through her tears, she caught a glimpse of Simon peering from the back of the wagon, an open book in his hands. He gave her a puzzled smile and started to say something, but she ran on and veered off the track. Scrubby windbrushes scratched her legs as she scrambled up a clay bank, and then she was running free across a barren plateau, hemmed in by the orange cliffs. She didn't stop until she was good and lost, but the anger still burned brightly. She had been angry before, but never like this. Normally, anger was like the red flame you got when the forge was first lit, all glows and sparks, but this anger was different. It had bellows behind it, and it narrowed to the tiny blue-white flame that cuts iron. It made her body tingle. She had to do something about it or burst. Why was it that when she heard Granny ramble on about witchcraft, she longed for the cutting magic of wizardry, but whenever she heard Treetle speak in his high-pitched voice, she would fight to the death for witchcraft. She'd be both, or none at all, and the more they intended to stop her, the more she wanted it. She'd be a witch and a wizard too, and she would show them. Esk sat down under a low-spreading juniper bush at the foot of a steep, sheer cliff, her mind seething with plans and anger. She could sense doors being slammed before she had barely begun to open them. Treetle was right. They wouldn't let her inside the university. Having a staff wasn't enough to be a wizard. There had to be training, too, and no one was going to train her. The midday sun beat down off the cliff, and the air around Esk began to smell of bees and gin. She lay back, looking at the near-purple dome of the sky through the leaves, and eventually she fell asleep. One side effect of using magic is that one tends to have realistic and disturbing dreams. There is a reason for this, but even thinking about it is enough to give a wizard nightmares. The fact is that the mind of wizards can give thoughts a shape. Witches normally work with what actually exists in the world, but a wizard can, if he's good enough, put flesh on his imagination. This wouldn't cause any trouble if it wasn't for the fact that the little circle of candlelight, loosely called the universe of time and space, is adrift in something much more unpleasant and unpredictable. Strange things circle and grunt outside the flimsy stockades of normality. There are weird hootings and howlings in the deep crevices at the edge of time. There are things so horrible that even the dark is afraid of them. Most people don't know this, and this is just as well because the world could not really operate if everyone stayed in bed with the blankets over their head, which is what would happen if people knew the horrors lay shadows whip the way. The problem is people interested in magic and mysticism spend a lot of time loitering on the very edge of the light, as it were, which gets them noticed by the creatures from the dungeon dimensions, who then try to use them in their indefatigable efforts to break into this particular reality. Most people can resist this, but the relentless probing by the things is never stronger than when the subject is asleep. Bel Sham Haroth Kahuligan, the insider, the hideous old dark gods of the Necrotelecomnicon, the book known to certain mad adepts by its true name of Liber Paginarum Fulvarum, are always ready to steal into a slumbering mind. The nightmares are often colourful and always unpleasant. Esk had got used to them ever since that first dream after her first borrowing, and familiarity had almost replaced terror. When she found herself sitting on a glittering, dusty plain under unexplained stars, she knew it was time for another one. Drat, she said. All right, come on then. Bring on the monsters. I just hope this isn't the one with the winkle on his face. By this time, it seemed that the nightmare had changed. Esk looked around and saw, rearing up behind her, a tall black castle. Its turrets disappeared among the stars. Lights and fireworks and interesting music cascaded from its upper battlements. The huge double doors stood invitingly open. 
There seemed to be quite an amusing party going on in there. She stood up, brushed the silver sand off her dress and set off for the gates. She had almost reached them when they slammed. They didn't appear to move. It was simply that one instant they were lounging ajar and the next they were tight shut with a clang that shook the horizons. Esk reached out and touched them. They were black and so cold that ice was beginning to form on them. There was a movement behind her. She turned around and saw the staff, without its broomstick disguise, standing upright in the sand. Little worms of light crept around its polished wood and crept around the carvings no one could ever quite identify. She picked it up and smashed it against the doors. There was a shower of octrine sparks, but the black metal was unscathed. Esk's eyes narrowed. She held the staff at arm's length and concentrated until a thin line of fire leapt from the wood and burst against the gate. The ice flashed into steam, but the darkness, she was sure now that it wasn't metal, absorbed the pow without so much as glowing. She doubled the energy, letting the staff put all its stored magic into a beam that was now so bright that she had to shut her eyes and could still see it as a brilliant line in her mind. Then it winked out. After a few seconds, Esk ran forward and touched the doors gingerly. The coldness nearly froze her fingers off. And from the battlements above, she could hear the sound of sniggering. Laughter wouldn't have been so bad, especially an impressive demonic laugh with lots of echo, but this was just sniggering. It went on for a long time. It was one of the most unpleasant sounds Esk had ever heard. She woke up shivering. It was long after midnight and the stars looked damp and chilly. The air was full of the busy silence of the night, which is created by hundreds of small furry things treading very carefully in the hope of finding dinner, while avoiding being the main course. A crescent moon was setting, and a thin grey glow towards the rim of the world suggested that, against all probability, another day was on the cards. Someone had wrapped Esk in a blanket. I know you're awake, said the voice of Granny Weatherwax. You could make yourself useful and light a fire. There's damn all wood in these parts. Esk sat up and clutched at the juniper bush. She felt light enough to float away. Fire? she muttered. Yes, you know, pointing the finger and whoosh, said Granny sourly. She was sitting on a rock, trying to find a position that didn't upset her arthritis. I... I don't think I can. You tell me, said Granny cryptically. The old witch leaned forward and put her hand on Esk's forehead. It was like being caressed by a sock full of warm dice. You're running a bit of a temperature, she added. Too much hot sun and cold ground. That's fawn parts for you. Esk let herself slump forward until her head lay in Granny's lap, with its familiar smells of camphor, mixed herbs and a trace of goat. Granny patted her in what she hoped was a soothing way. After a while, Esk said in a low voice, They're not going to allow me into the university. A wizard told me, and I'd dreamed about it, and it was one of those true dreams, you know, like you told me, a matty thing. Metaphor, said Granny calmly. One of them. Did you think it would be easy? asked Granny. Did you think you'd walk into their gates waving your stuff? Here I am, I want to be a wizard, thank you very much. He told me there's no women allowed in the university. He's wrong. No, I could tell he was telling the truth. You know, Granny, you can tell how... Foolish child. All you could tell was that he thought he was telling the truth. The world isn't always as people see it. I don't understand, said Esk. Your learn, said Granny. Now tell me, this dream, they wouldn't let you into their university, right? Yes, and they laughed. And then you tried to burn down the doors? Esk turned her head into Granny's lap and opened a suspicious eye. How did you know? Granny smiled, but as a lizard would smile. 
I was miles away, she said. I was bending my mind towards you, and suddenly you seemed to be everywhere. You shone out like a beacon, so you did. As for the fire, look around. In the half-light of dawn, the plateau was a mass of baked clay. In front of Esk, the cliff was glassy and must have flowed like tar under the onslaught. There were great gashes across it, which had dripped molten rock and slag. When Esk listened, she could hear the faint pink, pink of cooling rock. Ooh, she said. Did I do that? So it would appear, said Granny. But I was asleep. I was only dreaming. It's the magic, said Granny. It's trying to find a way out. The witch magic and the wizard magic are, I don't know, sort of feeding off each other, I think. Esk bit her lip. What can I do? she asked. I dream all sorts of things. Well, for a start, we're going straight to the university, decided Granny. They must be used to apprentices not being able to control magic and having hot dreams, else the place would have burned down years ago. She glanced towards the rim and then down at the broomstick beside her. We will pass over the running up and down, the tightening of the broomstick's binding, the muttered curses against dwarves, the brief moments of hope as the magic flickered fitfully, the horrible black feelings as it died, the tightening of the bindings again, the running again, the sudden catching of the spell, the scrambling aboard, the yelling, the taking off. Esk clung to Granny with one hand and held her staff in the other as they, frankly, pottered along a few hundred feet above the ground. And birds flew alongside them, interested in this new flying tree. Bagger off, screamed Granny, taking off her hat and flapping it. We're not going very fast, Granny, said Esk meekly. We're going quite fast enough for me. Esk looked around. Behind them, the rim was a blaze of gold, barred with cloud. I think we ought to go lower, Granny, she said urgently. You said the broomstick won't fly in sunlight. She glanced down at the landscape below them. It looked sharp and inhospitable. It also looked expectant. I know what I'm doing, miss, snapped Granny gripping the broomstick hard and trying to make herself as light as possible. It has already been revealed that light on the disc world travels slowly, the result of its passage through the disc's vast and ancient magical field. So dawn isn't the sudden affair that it is on other worlds. The new day doesn't erupt. It sort of sloshes gently across the sleeping landscape in the same way that the tide sneaks in across the beach, melting the sandcastles of the night. It tends to flow around mountains. If the trees are close together, it comes out of the woods, cut to ribbons and sliced with shadows. An observer on some suitable high point, let's say for the sake of argument, a wisp of cirrostratus on the edge of space, would remark on how lovingly the light spreads across the land, how it leaps forward on the plains and slows down when it encounters high ground, how beautifully it... Actually... There are some kinds of observers who, faced with all this beauty, will whine that you can't have heavy light, and certainly wouldn't be able to see it if you could, to which one can only reply, so how come you're standing on a cloud? So much for cynicism. But down on the disc itself, the broomstick barreled forward on the cusp of dawn, dropping ever backward in the shadow of night. Granny! Day burst upon them. Ahead of the broomstick, the rocks seemed to flash into flame as the light washed over them. Granny felt the stick lurch and stared with horrified fascination at the little scudding shadow below them. It was getting closer. What will happen when we hit the ground? That depends if I can find some soft rocks, said Granny in a preoccupied voice. The broomstick's going to crash. Can't we do anything? Well, I suppose we could get off. Granny, said Esk, in the exasperated and remarkably adult voice children use to berate their wayward elders, I don't think you quite understand. I don't want to hit the ground. It's never done anything to me. Granny was trying to think of a suitable spell and regretting that headology didn't work on rocks. 
and had she detected the diamond edge to Esk's tone, perhaps she wouldn't have said, Tell the broomstick that, then. And they would indeed have crashed, but she remembered in time to grab her hat and brace herself. The broomstick gave a shudder, tilted, and the landscape blurred. It was really quite a short trip, but one that Granny knew she would always remember, generally around three o'clock in the morning after eating rich food. She would remember the rainbow colours that hummed in the rushing air, the horrible heavy feeling, the impression that something very big and heavy was sitting on the universe. She would remember Esk's laughter. She would remember, despite her best efforts, the way the ground sped below them, whole mountain ranges flashing past with nasty zipping noises. Most of all, she would remember catching up with the night. It appeared ahead of her, a ragged line of darkness running ahead of the remorseless morning. She stared in horrified fascination as the line became a blot, a stain, a whole continent of blackness that raced towards them. For an instant, they were poised on the crest of the dawn as it broke in silent thunder on the land. No surfer ever rode such a wave, but the broomstick broke through the broil of light and shot smoothly through into the coolness beyond. Granny let herself breathe out. Darkness took some of the terror out of the flight. It also meant that if Esk lost interest, the broomstick ought to be able to fly under its own rather rusty magic. <sighs> Granny said, and cleared her bone-dry throat for a second try. <coughs> yes. This is fun, isn't it? I wonder how I make it happen. Yes, fun, said Granny weakly. But can I fly the stick, please? I don't want us to go over the edge. Please. Is it true that there's a giant waterfall all round the edge of the world and you can look down and see stars, said Esk. Yes, can we slow down now? I'd like to see it. No, I mean, no, not now. The broomstick slowed. The rainbow bubble around it vanished with an audible pop. Without a jolt, without so much as a shudder, Granny found herself flying at a respectable speed again. Granny had built a solid reputation on always knowing the answer to everything. Getting her to admit ignorance, even to herself, was an astonishing achievement. But the worm of curiosity was chewing at the apple of her mind. How, she said at last, did you do that? There was a thoughtful silence behind her. Then Esk said, I don't know. I just needed it. And it was in my head. Like when you remember something you've forgotten. Yes, but how? I... I don't know. I just had a picture of how I wanted things to be, and... and I... sort of... went into the picture. Granny stared into the night. She had never heard of magic like that, but it sounded awfully powerful and probably lethal. Went into the picture. Of course... All magic changed the world in some way. Wizards thought there was no other use for it. They didn't truck with the idea of leaving the world as it was and changing the people, but it sounded more literal. Needed thinking about. On the ground. For the first time in her life, Granny wondered whether there might be something important in all these books people were setting such store by these days. Although she was opposed to books on strict moral grounds, since she had heard that many of them were written by dead people and therefore it stood to reason reading them would be as bad as necromancy. Among the many things in the infinitely varied universe with which Granny did not hold was talking to dead people, who by all accounts had enough troubles of their own. But not, she was inclined to feel, as many as her. She looked down bemusedly at the dark ground and wondered vaguely why the stars were below her. For a cardiac moment, she wondered if they had indeed flown over the edge, and then she realised that the thousands of little pinpoints below her were too yellow and flickered. Besides, who ever heard of stars arranged in such a neat pattern? It's very pretty, said Esk. Is it a city? 
Granny scanned the ground wildly. If it was a city, then it was too big. But now she had time to think about it. It certainly smelled like a lot of people. The air around them reeked of incense and grain and spices and beer, but mainly the sort of smell that was caused by a high-water table, thousands of people, and a robust approach to drainage. She mentally shook herself. The day was hard on their heels. She looked for an area where the torches were dim and widely spaced, reasoning that this would mean a poor district, and poor people did not object to witches, and gently pointed the broom handle downwards. She managed to get within five feet of the ground before dawn arrived for the second time. The gates were indeed big and black, and looked as if they were made out of solid darkness. Esk and Granny stood among the crowds that thronged the square outside the university and stared up at them. Finally, Esk said, I can't see how people get in. Magic, I expect, said Granny sourly. That's wizards for you. Anyone else would have bought a door knocker. She waved her broomstick in the direction of the tall doors. You've got to say some hocus-pocus word to get in, I shouldn't wonder, she added. They had been in Ankh-Morpok for three days, and Granny was beginning to enjoy herself, much to her surprise. She had found them lodgings in the Shades, an ancient part of the city whose inhabitants were largely nocturnal and never inquired about one another's business, because curiosity not only killed the cat, but threw it in the river with weights tied to its feet. The lodgings were on the top floor, next to the well-guarded premises of a respectable dealer in stolen property, because, as Granny had heard, good fences make good neighbours. The Shades, in brief, were an abode of discredited gods and unlicensed thieves, ladies of the night and peddlers in exotic goods, alchemists of the mind and strolling mummers, in short, all the grease on civilization's axle. And yet, despite the fact that these people tend to appreciate the soft magics, there was a remarkable shortage of witches. Within hours, the news of Granny's arrival had seeped through the quarter and a stream of people crept, sidled, or strutted towards her door, seeking potions and charms and news of the future and various personal and specialised services that witches traditionally provide for those whose lives are a little clouded or full of stormy weather. She was at first annoyed, and then embarrassed, and then flattered. Her clients had money, which was useful, but they also paid in respect, and that was rock-hard currency. In short, Granny was even wondering about the possibility of requiring slightly larger premises, with a bit of a garden, and sending for her goats. The smell might be a problem, but the goats would just have to put up with it. They had visited the sites of Ankh-Morpok, its crowded docks, its many bridges, its souks, its kasbahs, its streets lined with nothing but temples. Granny had counted the temples with a thoughtful look in her eyes. Gods are always demanding that their followers acted other than according to their true natures, and the human fallout this caused made plenty of work for witches. The terrors of civilization had so far failed to materialize, although a cut purse had tried to make off with Granny's handbag. To the amazement of passers-by, Granny called him back, and back he came, fighting his feet which had totally ceased to obey him. No one quite saw what happened to her eyes when she stared into his face or heard the words she whispered into his cowering ear, but he gave back all her money plus quite a lot of money belonging to other people, and before she let him go, had promised to have a shave, stand up straight, and be a better person for the rest of his life. By nightfall, Granny's description was circulated to all the chapter houses of the Guild of Thieves, cut purses, housebreakers, and allied trades, with instructions to avoid her at all costs. Thieves, being largely creatures of the night themselves, no when trouble stares them in the face. The Guild of Thieves, Cut Purses, Housebreakers and Allied Trades. A very respectable body which in fact represented the major law enforcement agency in the city. The reason for this is as follows. 
The Guild was given an annual quota which represented a socially acceptable level of thefts, muggings and assassinations, and in return saw to it in very definite and final ways that unofficial crime was not only rapidly stamped out, but knifed, garroted, dismembered and left around the city in an assortment of paper bags as well. This was heard to be a cheap and enlightened arrangement, except by those malcontents who were actually mugged or assassinated and refused to see it as their social duty. And it enabled the city's thieves to plan decent career structure, entrance examinations and codes of conduct similar to those adopted by the city's other professions, which, the gap not being very wide in any case, they rapidly came to resemble. Granny had also written two more letters to the university. There had been no reply. End of CD 4